Hello and welcome to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by, well, one film geek again this week. Yes, it's another bonus filler episode, a look back in the archives of some old chats around classic films from our deep dives or from the selection of films that Andy had never gotten round to see that we ran during lockdown. Myself and Lee can't sync up again due to the work commitments that I've got whilst busy trying to open a brand new cinema down in Banbury. We'll fill in all the details as expected when we chat about it on next week's show. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy this little look back at some of the earlier chats which you may have missed you you may be a newcomer to the show you may be daunted by 120 or more past episodes so these bonus episodes are a chance for you to catch up on some of those classic moments that we've spoken about but before we start the ball rolling with the clips from the older shows i just want to remind you that whenever we do these little bonus episodes i've also been doing exclusive bonus episodes for no barriers radio which you will not hear on the podcast due to licensing issues around the music that we're using. Yes, we use the radio station of No Barriers Radio so that we've done a couple of bonus episodes which are looks into the kind of music from films that inspires us or just captivates our imaginations. There's two of these special episodes already being made and we probably will do more sometime down the line. So always keep a lookout on our social feeds because whenever there's going to be one of these special editions exclusive to No Barriers Radio, we'll be sure to let you all know. Anyway, let's get on with our look back at some old deep dives and classic films. So every week for the last few weeks, Andy has been running through a list of classic films that he has missed for whatever reason, uh, hibernation, he's been hunted by Sandmen. (laughs) We just don't know. And this is a film that, as as I said at the top end of the show i thought you and i had seen this and that's martin scorsese's hugo and i'm really surprised that that it it wasn't me and you which who did i see it with because uh, (laughs) i I, I know i certainly saw it so it's a 2011 film as i said uh directed by martin scorsese a bit of a change for scorsese a bit of a change for scorsese um because well it's it's his first and I usually use the term lightly, he's a, a children's film or a, a young adult's film. Based on Brian Selznick's uh, The Invention of Hugo Cabret, it's the story of a boy who lives alone in a railway station in Paris in the 1930s, only to become embroiled in a mystery surrounding his late father's automation and the pirating filmmaker, George S. Millet. Uh, Hugo was Scorsese's first film and he shot it in 3D and he found it to be an interesting experience because actors were more upfront emotionally. And their slightest moves, their slightest intentions were picked up much more precisely. That was the reviews on it. It received 11 Academy Awards, including Best Picture. And it's a real, real oddity. It wasn't a massive, massive film, even though it it made its money back. It's a film that I think you either love or you hate out of the Scorsese canon. But that's my take on it. Andy, tell us what you thought of Hugo. So before I tell you what I thought, as I said towards the beginning of the episode... I had my reasons why I think I avoided this film when it came out. And the primary reason was that it was overhyped about the 3D. And 3D for me was getting very, very tiresome. I was hating it. I was getting so annoyed at things getting put into 3D that even when Scorsese turns around and says, I'm filming in 3D, it's like, do you have to? So I was angered at this film for being in 3D. In addition, it was heavily trailered around Chloe Grace Moretz being in it. Well, she was and the biggest name to a degree, wasn't she? And she's she? not good. She's not a good actress. She was great in Kick-Ass, but everything else she'd been in, she's very flat. And I'm, I'm, re- I'm still not sold on her now. I still don't think she's got any talent. So those two elements combined were like, well, if she's going to be such a focus of this film, that's going to really feel duff to me. And so I was put off watching it. Now that I've seen it, I'm still not sold on Moretz. But thankfully, she's not in the film much. She's not the key character. And whilst there are some moments that were in the film to show off the 3D that stand out when you watch it in 2D, it's like, oh, well, that was supposed to be something near flying out towards the screen. Woo. But it didn't bother me because I got drawn completely into the tale. And as a lover of film, this is a film lover's film, especially 
due to the fact it explores one of the pioneers of the early days of effects technology in the industry, albeit from the viewpoint of the fictional Hugo who befriends him. You see, that was the element that I didn't know when I went in to see it. I didn't realise yeah. that it was a love letter to filmmaking. I thought it was a boy's adventure tale. And it's very clever in the way that it switches, because the first half hour is Hugo, played by Asia Butterfield, who'd already shown his marvellous presence on screen in films like Son of Rambo and The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas. And he's the focus of our attention as he goes around the day-to-day routine of keeping the clocks running at the station whilst avoiding Inspector Gustav Dust, played by Sasha Baron Cohen, and watching the activities of all the regular frequenters of the station, the people who work in shops, etc., people like, you know, who's falling in love with who, who's talking to who, and every bit of routine. All the while, he's trying to steal odds and ends to create a little automaton that he's got from a notepad that his father passed to him before his father mysteriously vanished. And it feels like it's just going to be a film about him making this automaton. And then about half an hour in, it does the clever switch as you start to go, oh, there's more to this. There's a lot more to this. And then it starts to unravel the whole mystery of the owner of one of the shops, toy shops, Papa George, played by the marvellous, marvellous Ben Kingsley. He basically makes young Hugo work for him to pay off a debt. And it's as his stern ex- like exterior starts to open up and he befriends Hugo and start like you, know, you start to find out about his past that you get this complete depth of tale. And what a great tale. What an absolute marvellous tale. And, and that's exactly the same thing for me. And that's the point where it's it was a good film and an enjoyable film that suddenly became about something and, and had a lot of weight to it for what was sold as a, as a, as a children's adventure. Because initially you, you kind of buy into it that it's a, this kid's adventure living in, in, in the clock tower in the railway station. Uh, and it's almost a little bit like a kid's version of Amelie for the yeah. sort of first half. And then it, then you realise what this what this film's about and, and why Martin Scorsese made this film. Because it's about, it's a love letter to cinema and the early days of cinema. And then you go, I get it. I totally get it. And it elevates it from that level of being a good children's adventure story into, into something much more. I mean, even if you take away that like love of cinema aspect of the story, by the halfway point of the film, I was as involved in the day-to-day activities of the support cast as what Hugo was of their characters. Richard Griffiths and Francis de la Tour's um, flirtatious, slow-building romance. I mean, Richard Griffiths, this, this is one of his last films before he sadly passed away. And what a great loss he was. Ray Winston's in there. Emily Mortimer is absolutely marvellous. Christopher Lee as the yeah. owner of the bookshop, another name that has, has left us yet a few years ago that it was a sad loss. Jude Law playing his father. I mean, the, the support cast were marvellous and everyone was delightful in their parts, but seeing their activities on their day-to-day routines, even Sasha Baron Cohen, who is basically playing a role not too dissimilar to the parts he crops up in other films, yes. um, as the inspector who grabs orphans, locks them away and gets the police to come and pick them up. He could have just been a really hateful character, but you've got his wanting to strike up a rapport with Emily Mortimer's character aspect of it that is played on and then there's a a moment in the film when he reveals something key to why he approaches orphans on the streets that way that adds so many more layers to him as a simple character everything is just there's no character wasted there's no two-dimensional characters everyone's got layers towards them and everyone's got a reason for being within that framework and what a framework i mean the scenery is majestic this blur between cgi and the real world aspects it's extremely hard to detect. The The sweeping shots across Paris are absolutely, deliciously, almost dreamlike, yet hyper-real at the same time. It is It is a film painted on canvas, isn't it? Oh, it's a marvellous-looking film, and it's so well-played. Like I say, there's the letdown of Moretz, who just really feels out of sorts in everything, and I don't know what accent she was going for in this film, but it clearly wasn't her own. But every any small niggle, didn't upset the overall flow and I had such a good time watching it and it's one that I'm definitely going to be rewatching. And also, and this is this is going to probably shock you, I'm also tempted to watch the 3D version. I think you should because it was a film, I, I get your argument with 3D and my my side of that argument are, 
are the films that got pushed into 3D that shouldn't have been, you know, yeah. that, that have no place. All the Marvel films. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you can see you can see in 3D films that weren't made as a 3D film that they, they had a little bit of an effect just to see it come out. This is a film that was designed for 3D. This was Scorsese always at the top of his game in, in everything that he does. Being in love with cinema, and it's almost, you know, to some extent, it's his story. He's that little boy, I think. It's a film that is designed for a 3D market and therefore uses it in a way that is creative and immersive. Good 3D is an immersive, an immersive experience. Lousy 3D is just something sticking out of the screen. The, the, you know, Avatar works in, in 3D because it immersed you into that world. And, and I think yeah. Hugo does that beautifully because it's a beautiful looking film and a beautifully designed film. It wasn't a big success when it came out. It, it made its money back, but only just. But critically, it did it did incredibly well uh, and was very well regarded. Many seeing it as a, as a big change for Scorsese. This wasn't the sort of film that w that we expect from him. But it is, at its heart, a children's adventure that is in love with cinema. And it's a film about cinema and if you're a cinemaphile, then you should. Why? Why shouldn't you be? If you come to to listen to us rant every week, then it's a film <laughs> that you have to see because it, it it talks about you know where we started, and it's a visually dramatic and mar a marvel of a film. It's interesting with it being like a fictional story inspired by real elements. How much historical fact is actually embedded within there? I mean, it, I went researching straight afterwards to see how much of like particularly the latter half of the film was actually true, and yeah, there's a significant amount of it is actual factual but there's also nice little historical nods and references uh even just images you've got like the the, the famous montparnasse derailment from 1800s yes with which is the famous picture of the train that had crashed all the way through the station and was like down the wall embedded into the street there's a moment in the film where that is a key scene and even though it's set way after it there's a reason why it's um it's there as a key scene. And it, as, as it was built into that scene, I was like, they're going to do it. They're going to do it. And I was like, oh, they did it. And it's such a marvelous little nod. And there's so many little touches throughout it, visually and creatively. Absolutely, absolute pleasure of a film, not just for film lovers, but for historians as well. You've made me want to see it again, actually, Andy. I, I've only <laughs> seen it the once. I, you know, I think because I went in not knowing what to expect, I yeah. didn't go in with a great deal of, of anticipation for it. I went because it was a Scorsese film. I think it's right for me to go back and watch it. It's one you could probably dissect each time that you watch it and find something new, little more little nuggets in there. Okay, so we've not had films to review uh, in the cinema. I guess we, we're missing out on a whole, whole range of films on Netflix. But what we have been doing is being taking a deep dive into some of the films that we consider classics and, and getting under the skin Digging deep. See where I'm going with this one. <laughs> I see where you're going. Oh, it's, it's written all over my face. <laughs> this is a monster movie from 1990. When I say a monster movie, it's a kind of horror, horror comedy directed by Ron Underwood. It's a film that, hey, if you've not seen it, you're missing out. And if you have seen it, it just makes you smile like a silly child. And that film is Tremors. Perfection. A scorched outpost in the middle of nowhere. You know how close I am to leaving this place right now? How close? Maybe that's why Val and Earl decided to leave town. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa! Hey, hold up. That's Edgar Deans. They just picked the wrong day to do it. Jeez. You guys better get the hell out of here. There's a killer on the loose. Or, or suckoids. Now this valley is just one long smorgasbord. Now, 
It's up to Val and Earl to save the world. That's one big mother. Who died and made you Einstein? And they know just what to do. Flip for it. Damn. Kevin Bacon. Fred Ward. Tremors. Can you believe this film is 30 years old? I saw it in the cinema when it came out, and uh, it, was, it was a half-empty cinema. It, it wasn't yeah. generating much word of mouth at that particular point, but I think it's one of those films that people have grown to love, because why wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, it, it didn't perform well at the cinemas, but it built up a huge following on VHS and home release. Um, I saw it at the cinema, like you, the cinema was pretty much empty, uh, but as soon as it came out on VHS, I bought it because I wanted to watch it again and again and again. I introduced it at that point to quite a few other people who grew to love it as well. Uh, it's it's a great homage to B-movies. Plotline is a small little town called Perfection, which has a, a population of 14 people, finds itself under attack by strange creatures under the ground. That is classic 50s sci-fi kind of like desert location, giant ants kind of story, but this time under the ground apparently um the creators of the franchise uh, wilson and maddock came up with the idea when they used to work on navy educational videos they were up on a large boulder one day and pondered what if something would let us off this rock and started penning out an idea for a film called land sharks i mean basically a giant big game of floor is lava would have took place <laughs> to try and get off which happens about halfway through the movie and from that they just kept growing the idea and these were the guys who gave us the short circuit script and when that did well for them and got their name out there, that gave them the motivation to go, okay, right, let's get this film down. And then in 1990, they managed to get it made. It starred Kevin Bacon, Fred Ward, uh, Michael Gross, Reba McIntyre. And it's one of those films that, as you said, uh, it didn't necessarily find its audience in the cinema, but it, it, with a burgeoning video market, that's where it came to life. That's where people discovered it and realised that it was just great, silly fun. And it's great, silly fun because and it does that thing where, where the combination shouldn't shouldn't always work, which is horror and comedy. When it works great, you get films like Tremors, you get films like uh, American Werewolf in London, where you want to laugh and you're scared at the same time. It's, yeah. it's, it's a it's a subgenre which which is open to fail, but but Tremors gets it right. Why do you think it, it does get it right? It gets it right. I mean, the casting more than anything. I mean, Kevin Bacon was inspired casting. I mean, he was he was on a roll at that point in time, so he was the biggest name in this film. But he was still taking smaller roles and not letting his ego take over. And his buddy routine with Fred Ward's Earl that starts the film off, and their banter and bickering and their like rock paper scissors with the rules constantly changing becomes like a key little like gag as it runs on. From that instant connection. You then like are introduced to like the more absurd characters like Michael Gross's Bert Gummer as the survivalist with a huge obsession with heavy weaponry. He, I mean, he'd come from the successful run on the sitcom Family Ties, and so this was his breakout film role. And you straight away take to him as a rather bizarre character, and you get a love for him, even though he's a bit weird. All the characters are so well cast that it just helps you draw yourself in to the setting and enjoy the setting that they're in, even without the monsters under the ground, which kudos to the design team for the monsters because they are well, well thought out monsters. You see, that's why I think it works. Yes, I, I totally agree with you that uh, that Fred Ward and Kevin Bacon are, are, are just hugely affable. They're, they're very, very likable characters and, and you buy into their relationship and, and therefore you buy into their window into the world. But it's the fact that they treat the monsters as monsters, they they don't laugh at the monsters. They are yeah. dangerous. Uh, they have uh, they've got that sense of threat to them. They are well designed, not only good looking, but but their motivations creatures work really really well. So you know, as I said before, the two tropes that often don't work are, are horror and comedy because I think they have a tendency to slant either side, and it never becomes gross out horror. It never becomes gross out comedy. They walk the line perfectly and, and they never miss the landing on it. Everything combines perfectly to produce a homage to 50s and 60s horror movies. Apparently, um, it was a friend of either Wilson's or Maddox, who was a biologist who helped design the creature. Like graboids, thinking about like, OK, graboids. graboids that they called them in the film. 
you know, it, it was a creature that had to bury through the ground. So how does that work? Well, the nose section is kind of like a, a bone shell. But, and it, you know, you look at like films like Dune, they had a similar kind of design for them. But then how does it grab people? You know, does it just lunge off? Well, no, sometimes it might have to probe. So it's got these little tentacles that come out of the mouth and grab, like taste around. It's underground, so it doesn't need to see. So it takes the like idea from moles that they don't actually see. They use like other ways of feeling things. It feels um, vibrations through the ground, and that's how it hunts. So everything was thought through from a biologist's point of view to make a creature that you actually you could actually believe is real. And yeah, the practical effects for it were fantastic. And sometimes looking like yeah, it could have been really cheesy, but played really well. Absolutely great design. Another monster movie that doesn't reveal the monster too early, because a lot of the times you just see things disappearing into the ground, puffs of dust coming up, uh, or even the marvellous sequence with the car getting swallowed into the ground that you don't really see anything except for a long shot with the headlights rising up towards the sky. So we said this film didn't really find its audience initially, but what it did do is it spawned several sequels. franchise. And I've not seen the the follow-ups because I thought too much of a great standalone film that Tremors was, it, it didn't need sequels. And especially with the fact that Kevin Bacon didn't come back for, for Tremors 2 Aftershocks. That came out in 96. The only reason he didn't come back, apparently, because he stated that on the on shooting Tremors, it was the single most fun time he's ever had making a movie. And he would have been happy to have returned to the role for the second film. However, there was a film called Apollo 13 that he was signed up for that would have clashed with the production for it. So we had to drop out. Oh, that's a shame. I didn't know that. Which you can see when you watch Aftershocks because there's a new character introduced to be a buddy towards uh, Earl. And they even play the rock, paper, scissors like aspect. All the elements that you see that would have been his character have been put to this one. However, they do like have fun playing it that like Earl suddenly does rock, paper, scissors and this new one looks at him like, what are you doing? <laughs> And so they play on the whole idea that he's trying to build up this relationship with a new buddy, but this new buddy hasn't got that years of working together, so he doesn't know them. After that second film, Fred Ward didn't come back from that point onwards, but Michael Gross as Bert became the key focus for each of the films going forward. So there was Tremors 3, Back to Perfection, and then... Yeah, that was a backdoor pilot for the TV series that came out in 2003. It was returned it back to the town of perfection. It introduced quite a few of the original characters. The girl who played Mindy, she returned, now all grown up, as did the the guy the guy who played the kid, the, the young lad. And then there was Tremors 4 as well. Legend Begins, a prequel. Tremors 2, I enjoy as a sequel. It's not as good as the original. It develops the graboid further. The, the graboids eventually get to a stage where they basically they split open and one or two screechers come out, which are more like velociraptor kind of creatures. Tremors 3 then introduce that if they're left to gestate for longer, they evolve again into a flying creature, which the idea being that it would then fly to a a different location before that one lays an egg to create new graboids. And so that's how it propagates. It's a a three-stage thing, similar to like the alien in the Aliens films. It's got this whole cycle of how to evolve itself into different areas so they grew the whole thing however the third film is a bit weak right but the fourth film which went back to the wild west i've got a lot of love for it has a lot of fun with it and wilson maddock and underwood had some connection with, with the three sequels and then it went off on one with tremors five bloodlines uh tremors a cold day in hell in 2018 there was uh Supposed to be another direct-to-video uh, sequel called Tremors Island Fury, which was supposed to be re- yep. released this year. And then there was a Tremors TV series. And you thought, well, is it going to end there? The recent films that Wilson and Maddock have had nothing to do with have been bad. I know nothing about I didn't know it had carried on for that long, to be perfectly honest. They have now become akin to Sharknado in that they are really cheap, low-budget kind of films. However, the Tremors franchise shouldn't be as tongue-in-cheek as Sharknado. It should be a bit more semi-serious with mild comedy, but it no, they're not worth checking. Even though Michael Gross is still involved in them, the series that got a pilot that we never got to see and then was cancelled and the rug pulled from sci-fi that w- would have been the proper sequel to the original film because Kevin Bacon was returning and apparently he really loved the script and he was happy to return for it. Maybe one day we'll get to see what that pilot looked like. All that we had was a trailer, which looked amazing. 
And that was the original creators bringing it back to what they wanted it to be. Will we see it again? I, th- I think that we'll, we'll see the Tremors franchise come back. I know that Wilson and Maddock have said that they've got ideas of where they want to take it. And if they can get some funding, they'll be well up for it. So let's, let's give some hope that someone like Netflix picks it up. Every week for the last few weeks during lockdown, uh, I've been challenging Andy to watch one of the films which, which for some reason, unbeknownst to all men, including scientists working on it by the hour, why he's missed certain very, very famous and classic movies. In a segment we like to call Andy's Missed Classic Movies, trademark the film file, I set Andy the task of watching, well, not only a film, but a, a piece of cultural relevance, uh, one of those films which can actually be said change the way that we perceive cinema. And that film is Rashomon. So Rashomon came out in 1950, uh, considered to be an absolute classic of cinema, directed by Akira Kurosawa. It's known as a psychological thriller, a a crime film, uh, a film about juxtapositioning. It's one of those films which, which redefined the storytelling elements in cinema and has been used many, many times. Its influence has been felt as recently until the last couple of years ago. For those who don't know it, it's a, it's a plot device that involves various characters providing subjective and alternate and self-serving contradictory versions of the same event. Andy, for a film that's, that's, that's classic, I had to do this as part of film school. What did you think of Rashomon and tell us about the film and why those elements of those perspectives were so groundbreaking? Story-wise, it's it's an intriguing enough story. It's you know the whole approach of the unreliability of witnesses exploring the events surrounding a murder told from the different perspectives of all involved, and showcasing how each person will tell the story to show themselves in a more positive or stronger light. Maybe they're saying that they did the murder, but they're doing that to show that they're not weak. And it's it's one of those stories that still doesn't quite answer exactly what happened by the end of it and leaves you thinking and trying to piece it together yourself which kurosawa when asked who actually did commit the murder and how what what is the truth said that it's up for you to interpret he didn't want to reveal what he believed the true story was because it, it is a film that explores understandings and perceptions and piecing together puzzles what makes this film really stand out is not the story but the method in which it's told the cinematography the use of lighting the simplistic sets uh, and and just the the natural way of telling the story it's not overblown it's not you know packed with like dramatic music telling you how to feel and how to like follow it it is just presented to you as multiple stories it, it, it is a fantastic film, and, and you mentioned cinematography. You, you've got to, you've got to give a huge credit to how this film looks, uh, because Kurosawa worked really in a close collaboration with Keizu Miyagawa. And you're right; it gives it that that it gives it such an, an individualistic look. It gives it, it sets it aside from any other sort of Japanese film at that particular point. Not only the storytelling, but there, there are just so many. Well, just so many darn cool moments in it. And and my, my favourite element of it is because he was such a fantastic actor, was Toshiro Mufun in it, who's just absolutely, he's one of those actors. And, and I know they've attempted to do several tellings of this in in, in, in Western-style storytelling, but he is he is the Clint Eastwood of, of Japanese cinema and and, yeah. and and such a star-making role that he, that he has with this movie. He worked regularly with Kurosawa, as did um, Takashi Shimura, who's also hugely notable and recognisable throughout all of Kurosawa's films. He plays the woodcutter, doesn't he? Yes. He's the one who who starts the story off and starts telling the backstory, and then it passes around. The the whole concept of the film is the three guys taking shelter at the um, Rashomon Gate are talking about this crime that took place. And relaying the information as to what they know about it, and it's a simple way to approach a story. But like we said, the cinematography, very experimental in the uses of multiple filming techniques, catching the actual natural light of the sun and using reflective surfaces to shine it onto moments. That's right. So that it's not it's not falsely lit. 
simple things such as the series of single close-up shots of the bandits to the wife to the husband to the bandit to the wife to the husband as like the tensions building to show the triangular relationship and that's a sequence that would later as with a lot of kurosawa's stylings pop up in films from people such as sergio leone i mean the the good the bad and the ugly has that triangle approach for the mexican standoff it does like leone was hugely influenced by kurosawa and he never denied it because all of his spaghetti westerns were basically Kurosawa's films, given a Western style. You watch this film, and it's a film that, whilst the story's good, if it wasn't for the way that it's made, it would just be an average kind of film. But the manner in which it's made leaves you at the end wanting to explore it more to see how it influenced everything that came after it. Because the four stories are the bandit story, which is a Toshiro Muffin one, and then you've got the wife's story, the samurai's wife, who tells a different story to the court. And then you've got um, the samurai story, where the court is the story of the deceased samurai, told yep. through a medium. And then we've got the woodcutter story back at the Rashomon Gate after the trial. Yep. And then we have the climax where uh, the woodcutter, the priest, the commoner interrupted from the discussion of the woodcutter's account by the sound of that crying baby. Yeah. We said that it's hugely influential. Uh, are influential on people like Sergio Leone. The the impact of Rashomon and the style of Rashomon has carried on today into films. Well, for instance, the the, the things that, that instantly spring to mind are uh, Usual Suspects, which is the, the yep. telling of a story of a, an unreliable uh, narrator. In that one, I mean, you've even got. I mean, Tarantino has been influenced with it. I mean, if there's when Pulp Fiction came out, some people criticised that some of the scenes where you get to see a repetition of an event is different. Yeah, the famous um, Sam Jackson, like, Ezekiel quote, when it's seen, like, heard later on in the film from the person behind the door, it's said in a different way. But that's, again, the whole, this is what they're witnessing from these characters are. And, you know, Tarantino has cited Kurosawa in a few interviews as one of his influences on his films. I mean, other than Usual Suspects, you can look at films like Gone Girl, which is, again, the unreliable yeah. narrative. Courage Under Fire, uh, the yep. Edward Zick directed uh, Denzel Washington film. Predestination. I don't know if you had a chance to see that. I've not seen uh, Predestination. Buick Brothers, who did Daybreakers um, with Ethan Ethan Hawke as a, as a time traveller. And then there's Hero, the Jet Li film, which again is a mercenary who gains the audience uh, with China's Emperor to share a tale of eliminating of three famed assassins. So it's a film that not only is it in the all time top 100 of the greatest films ever made. It's a film that's had such an impact on storytelling because of the unreliable narrative of uh, the unreliability of the eyewitnesses telling that story. And and still, even though it's as a 1950s film, and I'm, I'm sure you found this, Andy, watching it afresh is still intriguing. It doesn't feel like you're watching an old movie. You're still gripped by it. Yeah. Uh, and you're still... You still invest into the story. I, I must admit, I've not seen this for probably now, what, 15 years, maybe 20 years. But it's a film that I remember seeing and, and absolutely walking away, being, being blown away with. And one of those films when, that people say is a classic and you go, yeah, it is. It's like Citizen Kane. Yeah. It, it's a moment in film history. It's a moment of, 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 a, of a proper film legend. Is it Kurosawa's best film? Uh, no, I mean, personally... Hidden Fortress, Yojimbo, and Seven Samurai are far better than yeah, it. Yeah, I'll go with that. I, I, prefer, I think Yojimbo is the one I go back to. Is it his most important film? Yes, I think it's his most important one because of the manner in which it plays with conventions. Okay, so because we've not been uh, because we've not been sat in a darkened cinema, being able to review something to bring you what we've been doing over the last few weeks. I say last few weeks, but it's last few months now. We've been doing a deep dive into a film that are either uh, films that, that, that are worth uh, revisiting or films that we love or films that we just want to dissect. And when we decided on a film for this week, we both kind of looked at each other via the Internet and went, you know what we should do? We should revisit The Matrix because, hell, why not? We're living it right now. Only, only some of the system files have got corrupted. Human beings are a disease, and we are the cure. 
Now. So you're here to save the world. Everything you know about reality. So what do you need? Guns. Lots of guns. Everything you believe about the future. Buckle your seatbelt, Dorothy, because Kansas is going bye-bye. Will be a thing of the past. No one can be told what the Matrix is. Whoa. You have to see it for yourself. The Matrix. So The Matrix came out in 1999. That's unbelievable for a start. Directed by the Wachowskis, who were then the Wachowski brothers. Uh, the first installment that ended up being a trilogy. The film starred Keanu Reeves, Lawrence Fishburne, Carrie Ann Moss and Hugo Weaving. It depicts a dystopian future in which humanity is unknowingly trapped inside, which has now become legend, The Matrix. A simulated reality created by an artificial intelligence to distract humans while their bodies are used as an energy source. When computer programmer Thomas Anderson, under the hacker name of Neo, uncovers the truth, he's drawn into a rebellion against the machines, along with other people who've been freed from the Matrix. I saw this when it came out, and this came out kind of pre-Phantom Menace, and it was kind of the little film that could, because no one had really heard about it. There was some suggestions, there was a poster, there was a, a, a little bit of trailer, and it's a film that came out that absolutely ripped up the cinema. People sat and watched something that they'd never seen before, which was this combination of, of anime, subgenre of cyberpunk, Hong Kong action movies, uh, Hollywood action movies, and it blew people away. And to some extent, it unfortunately got muted by the, the two sequels for me. But when it came out, this was one of those films... And I, I saw it a couple of times. I saw it at a press show and then I went back to the cinema with some friends to see it. And then I went back again because I thought it was, I just thought it was that awesome. I remember on the run up to this film, I was excited for this film before it came out because being hugely into me sci-fi and genre, you know, reading magazines like SFX for 12 months beforehand, they were doing little features about this upcoming film that was going to be a live action anime and you know what it was going to it was going to visually represent images that we've seen only in cartoons such as ghost in the shell etc and that was it i was i was bought in and i was lapping up any information and this was this was pre me being able to get online and get onto the the sl small online groups that there were at the time so on the run-up to the film i was lapping up any magazine that had an image from the film i was picking up and reading and wanted to know more about it and i was surprised once i found out that the industry expected it to not really do much yeah it, it generally developed a, a grass level uh, a, a grass level following it's fans picked it up people went to the cinema uh, and made this film uh, of course the audiences always make a film a hit but they made it a hit because they were they were knocked off, knocked off their seats by it i mean it, it had a cast that were either unknown or they'd fallen off the radar or they'd only ever been secondary actors. Keanu Reeves had completely fallen off everyone's radar at the time. And this was the film that propelled him back into the back into the focus point. The film was not expected to do much. When I started working at cinemas a couple of years later, finding out that they were surprised with how busy it was. And I was like, what? You weren't expecting this? What? Because I remember going there on opening night and it being heaving, absolutely heaving, because the buzz by that point had just blown and they completely didn't expect it. But why was it such a, an influence? Story-wise, it's a cracking story. It's simple enough, but it's layered. Yes. I mean, all these memes going around about everything's made of cake. Matrix is cake. <laughs> if you slice it open, you can see the multiple layers. It's such a clever film, but it's visually spectacular enough, pushing the boundaries of what could be achieved action and effects-wise that if you couldn't quite grasp on the multiple layers of story, you would just be thrilled and drawn along by the ride. It didn't look like any other film, did it? It didn't look like any other action film, uh, Hollywood film, that, that came out at that particular time. I, I still think it's hard to find a film, even in this day and age, that lives up to it. The effect, I mean, going back to rewatch this, and this is a film that I go back to quite frequently, and it still baffles me how it can still look much better than a lot of modern day films. It still looks amazing. The bullet time effect is still, even though it was overused, I mean, it wasn't used in about 40 different films within two years of The Matrix coming out. The one I remember is always that it was used in uh, Charlie's Angels. Yeah, it's still a staggering effect because 
what the Wachowskis did is, and they didn't create the bullet time effect. It was not a, an original idea. It had been done in various kind of things previously, but it used to use just single still shots and then mapping them all together. Yeah, I remember it being used in Lost in Space. Yeah, they created a rig system with actual motion cameras connected around it so they could film the whole sequence and then play it back in any order. So they, they had full fluid motion as to what shots they were going to be using and to spin it round and bring it back, etc. Remember watching like the behind the scenes stuff on the DVDs and going into detail and just being wowed that they pushed the technology to develop it into such a perfect effect. I think the reason that we we associate The Matrix with bullet time more than any other film is because it was so integral to the plot as well. It wasn't yeah. just a great effect that, that was plucked out and like somebody said, you know, we should use this. It really became, it became a centerpiece. It was representing him becoming one with The Matrix and being able to break the code. Yeah, and it was it was a fantastic shot when we first see it, but it played into what the film was about as well. It wasn't just a cool effect thrown away because it looked great. It, it, it became symbolic to what the Matrix and the Matrix artistic feeling was about that one. The general look of the film, you've got all the scenes within the Matrix are tinted green because at that point in time, most desktop PCs had your green monitors. So it was to represent that this is artificial. And then when they're in the real world, most of the scenes had a tint of blue because blue is a more natural feel. And that was a subtlety that I didn't pick up the first time they watched it. But I think it was when they got it on home release and I sat and watched it and I thought, oh, is something wrong with me, me colour because it looks a bit green. I was like, oh, no, this is deliberate. And it's only then that it kind of referenced to me as like, this is how it distinguishes what's real and what's not. And the music of the film, the music choices from the acts such as Prodigy, Marilyn Manson, Propeller Heads and Rage Against the Machine to the original pieces by Don Davis make the film what it is without, you know, without the propeller heads like running as the like low, like firing weapons in a in the entrance to the building. They're doing the full raid. Oh yeah, no, act three. Would yeah. that scene have played out the same way with like without that music? Oh, dum 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 dum. Marvelous choices and so keyed in to the public psyche at that point in time that they became part of the whole Matrix effect. So this came out in the run up to Phantom Menace. And, and people said that was the science fiction film blockbuster of of that year. And, and I, I agree. I think it was it's more memorable. It stood a better test of time. As you said, if you look at it now, it still has a freshness to it. Okay, some of the computer technology is the only thing that feels a little dated. But hey, they're living in a matrix. It had a such an impact on, on audiences and such an impact on films following that, that it redefined sort of how action sequences were shot, which even today with movies like John Wick uh, are, are still used the, the way that, that 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 thrilling. It was the anti-Michael Bay effect to a degree, wasn't it? It wasn't it wasn't just the fast cuts. It was the way that the action was choreographed that, that felt new and felt different. And as you said, it, it redefined Keanu Reeves's career. Uh, and, and took uh, Keanu Reeves further down sort of the action path, especially in martial arts film that he, uh, that, that again, we see him play out today in, in his own film, Man of Tai Chi, for instance, is, uh, owes a huge debt to, to The Matrix. It's it's a stunning, stunning film. It's it's a film that, even though is of its era, it's, it's incredibly timeless. I mean, it, it's a film that made everyone want a Nokia phone. Yes. I mean, the, the, the phones, and those phones in reality were a hunk of junk. They didn't do the, the slick click noise when you slide it open. It kind of sort of went and just dropped and then fell on the floor. <laughs> it was an utter piece of junk, but it made them look cool. Everything about the film looks cool. The whole residual self-image thing, like the, what you look like in The Matrix, is your, your self-image. And they all look, you know, there's the clip-on glasses, there's the long trench coats. Marvellous way of explaining why these people look so cool while they're doing what they're doing. And it's because that's how they perceive themselves. We can't talk about The Matrix, though, without having to talk about Matrix Reloaded and Matrix Revolutions. Uh, they were filmed back-to-back -back, uh, in one shoot, came out on separate dates in 2003. They opened up the world... Uh, there was an improvement on the bullet time visual effects. There was also the Animatrix, a collection of uh, nine animated short films, uh, many created within the same Japanese animation style. 
a strong influence on, on the live. There was a game that, that tied into the films as well. However, for me, they spoil what The Matrix was. They, they take away, they leave a bit of a dark, nasty sheen over the original Matrix. What are your thoughts on, on the sequels? I remember as sequels came out, and um, yeah, the first sequel came out and half of the audience turned against the film. And then the third sequel came out and the remaining audience there, half of them turned against the film. Whereas me, I embraced them all because I embraced the the anime pseudo psychologies that it was expanding out. It, this was stuff that I'd immersed myself in through like me manga and animes, me Akira's, me Ghost in the Shells, me Apple Seeds, etc. So it was delivering what I was expecting. But I completely, at the same time, understood how off-putting it was for people who wanted just more of the simple philosophies and not to bog itself down. And it is heavy in the, in the, the following two films. It does weigh itself down and bog itself down and mire itself. And maybe maybe 30 minutes of editing on each of the films would have tightened things up and made them better. Yeah, there were some fantastic key sequences in, in all of the films, but there's nothing like that rush that you got from the original Matrix. Not that the fact that you, you'd seen it, but it didn't have the compelling, they didn't have the compelling storylines that the, the Matrix had. There was, there was too much involvement in, it became more about the fetish than it became yeah. about the storytelling. Yeah, the expansion into video games to tell opposing stories. There was also an online game that ran for a few years that picked up from the events at the end of the third film and allowed things to progress there as you're someone who's been awoken within the Matrix. It, there was a lot of expansion to the stories and there's so much potential within there that I'm still excited for this next film that's going to be in production. So am I. I, I, hope, it, I hope it brings back what was exciting about the Matrix and rather than what became turgid about the sequels. One flaw that I will throw at the sequels is the over-reliance on CGI. Yes. The first film, the action sequences work so well because all the wire work combined with like the bullet time effect was all done there and then. I mean, even things where they could have used CGI. I mean, the, there's the simple scene of, you know, the training sequence walking through the crowd and then the woman in, woman in the red dress. Yeah. If you watch that, you will notice the same person in different costumes multiple times. And that's because they hired multiple sets of twins in order to do that for real. So you would have the, them going past a businessman in a suit and then someone who looks exactly the same, dressed as a cop, turning around and looking at them. And it wasn't a CGI mapping. It was, we hired twins. And this was all just so that they could create the representation of a training program where obviously they wouldn't have scripted thousands and thousands of people to use within this framing. They would have just, like gaming designers do these days, just remap the same image multiple times. Brilliant. Whereas on the sequels, everything that they did where they wanted to replicate things, it was CGI. Yeah, some of the CGI came about because uh, Keanu Reeves famously had an injury on set that would have put production back a significant amount. So they had to digitally map him into some sequences. But I think they became a bit too reliant on that technology. Yeah, and it, I agree. As, as good as, I mean, even, even today, as good as the CGI effects for representing people are a lot of the time it still looks like rubber dolls yeah yeah it, it does. still doesn't look real it looks more computer game doesn't it than it does it breaks you away from it and it disconnects you from being able to relate to the film because it no longer feels like it's got any risk or threat to it and that's the only flaws that i will give to the second and third films is that the over-reliance on cgi cheapens and weakens some really key moments even the scenes in the real world, the defense of Zion, let down by some sloppy CGI. Yeah. It should have been climatic. It should have been powerful. It should have been the last defense of mankind. But instead, it's like, oh, ah, that didn't quite work. Oh, that's no. And it, it just felt too much like a computer game rather than a desperate attempt at hu uh, humanity's last chance. Going back and revisiting it over the last week there was one scene in particular and i was talking to a friend of mine who's a programmer and he pointed it out which is when he goes to see the oracle neo goes to see the oracle in that sequence she keeps asking him and i never noticed this if he wants a cookie because cookie is <laughs> how you get information it's those little layers to to the matrix that give it that that extra quality that that well thought out creation of of world building which is why it's, again, stood the test of time and feels still feels sort of timeless. It's it's a film that 
there's so many levels that you can look at it. And I love the whole cookies aspect. So just a couple of quick points on the development of this film. The uh, Wachowskis originally pitched the role of Neo to Will Smith, and he turned it down in favour of doing Wild Wild West, which I bet he's still I mean, what, what a choice. Yeah. Morpheus. I don't blame him, to be honest with you. <laughs> Morpheus was originally to be played by Val Kilmer. I remember I was in Los Angeles just before it came out, and there were images of uh, Keanu Reeves with the shaved head, with headlines going, uh, Keanu Reeves desperately ill, not realising yeah. that they were actually shots was... from, uh, from The Matrix. Sandra Bullock was touted for playing Trinity, but she turned it down because at that point in time, she didn't know who was going to be playing the lead actor or it hadn't been confirmed as Keanu Reeves. And she said she, she didn't fancy working alongside someone who she didn't know. And then Keanu Reeves got, got pitched, got um, attached later and she turned around and went, well, I made a mistake. <laughs> Over 20 years later, there's no, there's no turning back from the impact this film made. It changed Keanu Reeves' career without... The Matrix, we wouldn't have the John Wick films, I don't think. We wouldn't have that indulgence that we had for a short while of, of, of Hong Kong wire work in, that ended up in a lot of films. Never again, yeah. I think, used as successfully it was used in the, in the Matrix because it was, a, it was effects, it was stunts that worked within a storyline, not just for a, a, a gee whiz moment. I'm looking forward to the next Matrix film. I know they tried to reboot it a few years ago with Michael P. Jordan in a possible lead role, but it is about Neo. It is about Neo's journey, and it'd be great to see Keanu Reeves again, who seems to be revisiting some of his old characters, to come yeah. back and and give us a hopefully a Matrix sequel that is deserved of how classic the original film is. And that's about it for this week. We'll be back next week with another one of our usual episodes. Me and Lee will find lots of things to catch up with and talk about even though i've not seen much i'm hoping lee's had chance to see a lot more than i have thank you for listening as always and remember no one can tell you what the matrix is you have to find out for yourself